0: This is Joseph Ravesi. I'm here with Neil Robinson, and we are recording this interview in Bethany, Oregon, on July second, twenty fifteen. And this is part of Loud, Fast, Philly. Uh, for those who did not read my summary of the interview, it's important to note that Neil is not a Philly person, and this is not part of the interview series proper, but rather uh, is part of the sort of ancillary interviews that comprise the series of people uh, that either I found to be very influential particularly interesting or had uh, some influence on people in Philadelphia uh, so it's my pleasure to, to talk to Neil out here um, at Farmageddon uh, and in his uh, little uh, shack that he built uh, which is quite nice uh, and shaded fortunately <laughs> which is the best part of it it's hot as shit out here. Yes it is. <laughs> uh, Neil you were not born here uh, so let's begin at the beginning of uh, where, where are you from and, and when were you born?
1: I was born in 1962 here in a little area called Crystal Palace, um, southeast London, later... No, it got annexed into South East London, and then when I was just a youngster my parents moved out to a little suburb called Swanley in Kent. Uh, it was kind of an overflow town where a lot of Londoners moved to uh, somewhat of a commuter town a lot of folks still worked in London but moved out there grew up there and then I left home at 15
0: Um, what was your life like uh, growing up like what what did your parents do or what what was the community like in which you lived uh, you know for these early years
1: so my dad was a builder he had started off as a carpenter Put himself through night school, um, learning architecture, then became a bricklayer. Um, at the same time he was raising both his parents had died and he was left raising two kids from 15 until they left home. Um, and he stayed in in construction, mainly in central London um he stuck with doing what we call council housing which over here will probably be low income housing mm-hmm. which now i i think a lot about because he had the choice to go to, into private housing where there was more money but for some reason which i've never been out to discuss, because i left home at a young age and don't see him but one day i'd love to ask why he stuck with this low-income housing. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, the council
0: houses, I guess, began as sort of an egalitarian idea, right? Mm-hmm. That, that they would provide a, some sense of community. In a, yeah. And but ultimately didn't go in that direction, right? I mean, no. Where, where it
1: was kind of the yeah. same as here. It got to the point where the councils, the local councils, didn't want to be landlords because mm-hmm. of the many challenges of being a... Right. You know, a, a a, a landlord, so they started getting out of it, started... um, Actually, again, when I was pretty young, they started selling off council houses to individuals at fairly reasonable rates. Mm -hmm. Um, Traditionally, areas working class, working poor, etc. And I, I, I got... My family got in the newspaper because my grandma was the last house on one of the council estates Mm -hmm. and she refused to to buy it but she wouldn't move out so her house was and she had no indoor plumbing she was the last house and she she was squatting her own house she was 92 she would carry this is crazy she would boil water in the kitchen Mm -hmm. carry upstairs in a metal tub to fill up the bathtub she still had a bathroom a toilet out back
2: uh-huh.
1: and they, the council would try and send over plumbers to her <laughs> and <fantastic>. she <laughs> in the end she died at a 99 she died As impressive and it was yeah and sometimes we'd go over there at weekends because my family would try to go see her and she was getting a bit senile, and often she'd think we were the plumbers and <laughs> she'd be shouting at us from <laughs> <on> the window <laughs> it was funny um it was a. Uh, it was an interesting upbringing um, i didn't I didn't do well at school i I'm sure now I would be considered a person with learning disabilities mm-hmm. back then, I was just an idiot and what 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 do you think that that was No one understood it
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the way I was acting i was I was disruptive to the people that wanted to learn right so obviously. I think back then they thought, well, everyone can learn. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. either you choose to or, like me, yeah. you just don't, you don't want to learn. Mm-hmm. So I was a troublemaker. I was usually put outside the class, often given answers to quizzes and...
0: Oh, just to move you just along. Just to move the me system. along. Yeah. So
1: I would sit out class and often I'd leave and go walk in the hallways and start disturbing others. Um, but I excelled at a couple of things, which was any sport, and then surprisingly cooking. And the school I went to, males, cook in cooking class. Mm-hmm. You were a fag. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So I then had to all be constantly defending, or I would get worked up when. Yeah. You know, yeah. I get these homophobic and and. But the teacher worked with me, and I. it took a long time for me to be able to read. To this day, I still can't do math, but I've. we have so many tools that can do you math do it, for yeah. us. <laughs> so I learned well. to use the tools, <laughs> yeah. and I can probably use most of the tools better than most people because mm-hmm. I started at such a young age. What were
0: your interests at, uh, as a young person?
1: Pretty much sports.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it was... I was lucky in the, in the education system back then, we, we had a thing called the, oh, I'm going to totally space what it's called. At a young age, you can do an exam. And if you pass the exam, you get put into what they call grammar school, mm-hmm. which is like, you're, you're, you're going to be smart. Etc. Usually grammar school students will go on to university, college, etc. If you fail the exam, you get put into secondary modern. And secondary modern was kind of looked at as, Oh, well, you're dumb because you didn't get into grammar.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I think my parents were pretty smart. They saw that I was having some issues, even though they didn't maybe understand what it, what the, what it was. So they never put me into the exam. So I went... I got put into what we call a comprehensive, which is anyone left over and the school I got put into was heavily biased to sports
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it just so happened that I was good at sports every night when I got home from school I go with my mates and we go down the local recreation park and play mm-hmm. soccer till yeah. the end of the night and I cause some trouble but <laughs> so I Started getting put into all the sports. Well, the one issue about that was the teacher was really pushing us win, 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 mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I had such a terrible competitive edge to me mm-hmm. that if I lost, and I had a temper back then, yeah, if I lost, I'd flip out mm-hmm. and it. it it all kinda hit the fan one night. I was I was part of a table tennis team and I got beat and I just stormed around the table and <laughs> Table the tennis t- would
0: <laughs> surely do that to
1: anybody. <laughs> uh, the very high stakes. Yeah, <laughs> I walked around the table and smacked a kid and <laughs> uh, Um and I had very, very early on had some teachers that were pretty abusive and my my response to them was often ag- aggressive um, and very anti-authoritarian i think mm-hmm. that started right, with so the teachers seeds. Yeah, yeah. yeah they were the seeds of anyone that kind of if you come from a place of talking down to me mm-hmm. i will respond with yeah. usually a very aggressive manner yeah pushing show up. me some respect yeah. and i've learned to turn that around now mm-hmm. to to understand that oh well maybe i need to be the one to take the step back and sh- and 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 set the moral standard for however we're going to have this interaction <laughs> oh, yeah. so that it doesn't dissolve into being that talking with a dude with a swastika on his forehead mm-hmm. or i would very i think i got involved in martial arts pretty early on and i think that that was a that was a really, or not early on. Maybe I shouldn't get into that. But on the lorry side, I got into martial arts mm-hmm. with Puerto Rican senseis, and that was really, I think that was a a, a, um, a real learning point for me about myself, about setting me in a place to have some confidence, mm-hmm. going into situations. And dissolving any, you know, conflict where we could sit down and, and discuss it.
0: You mentioned that you were out of the home at a pretty young age. Oh. What, what was it that propelled you out of the home, and, and what did it propel you into?
1: I think I got exposed to punk. My brother was the first one to get into punk. He was going to, he was going to a university in Leicester Square. I can't remember the name of it and like a lot of universities in the early days of punk we're talking 76 here Mm -hmm. 75 76 they were put on shows and uh i remember one day i came home from school and i heard music playing playing in his room and then i he left i don't know where he went i went in a room and there was a an album cover and it was sex pistols Mm -hmm. never mind the bollocks and it was on the turntable. I stuck it on, put the headphones on. I was just like, that was it, you know? And then...
0: Were you a music person before
1: that? Did you like... No, uh, no, no, I mean, like a lot of kids, I grew up with my parents' music being the background Mm -hmm. of my life, and my reaction was to hate it all. Beatles, Eagles, Mm -hmm. Elton John, etc. Um, No, I hadn't, hadn't really been into music, but once I heard that Sex Pistols and then I think probably the most groundbreaking band for me was Sham 69 came out with Tell Us The Truth. And I remember I took the album to school and I set up during lunch break, I set up a turntable and I put it on oh it was a riot (laughs) i got expelled for the day for bringing this in
0: (laughs) did the kids at least like it oh they loved it they loved
1: it and and you know all of a sudden you were starting to see punk in the media i think the whole bill grundy Mm -hmm. interview happened and and all of a sudden we turned on top of the pops and you'd see these punks and so i went out and bought my punk t-shirt i think a pair of pair of converse and we called them drainpipe jeans and mm, yeah, i went really to school bent, and yeah. got sent home for dressing that way um and then everything was happening in london mm-hmm. i lived in i lived in a commuter town even though just up the just up the road was a town called bromley which became famous because at a bromley contingent which was using the Zee, yeah yeah um um Oh what's his name from Generation X? Um
3: Billy Idol, oh, yeah, right.
1: um, Steve Severin. Anyway, they used to hang out there, so me and my brother would go up there because I would I would you know I was looking up to my brother cause he was getting a CD's bands. And then there was a show happening it was X-ray specs, the skids, someone else and it was at the Marquee in London in central London. And I, I my brother was going, so I snuck out my bedroom window, went up with him. I think I I got a, a garbage bin liner. <laughs> it was your outfit. <laughs> that was a bin liner, yeah. And then uh went up to the show and was just uh, it was incredible. And then we're all my brother's there with all these you know, I was I was pretty young now, must have been thirteen. 14. and and uh, brother was with these older kids. So he starts. I, w- I was smoking cigarettes because at school that was yeah. the rebel thing. I was yeah. smoking. So he started passing round his cigarette. Mm-hmm. So he got to me. So oh, of course cool, so I'm going to smoke a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. And it was hash. Right. <laughs> and I don't remember any of the rest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's this hash. But I totally got hooked and and wanted then to not be in the suburbs, I wanted to be in the center of it. And just the whole struggling at school with academic learning, but I seemed to have this flair for cooking and the teacher was really trying to help me with the cooking to understand the numbers, the measuring. Um, I, I, I had issues with reading and writing so she she really worked with me and I applied to this local hotel chain in, in central London and they accepted me as a pot washer to start but with the um they would start sending me to cooking school mm-hmm. and I would get to live at a hostel in centre London. So yeah. I was like
3: yeah, should, I'm yeah. going for it. <laughs> yeah.
1: And my parents were supportive they, they saw I, I was not doing well there so they supported me in that and yeah that's how it kind of all began just moved up to they had a hostel in Maida Vale which was in northwest London um, just off of not far from um, Oxford Street so the 100 Club was kind of my place every and there were just shows everywhere mm-hmm. every pub had a show going on the
0: were you surprised to see that this thing was sticking around? That it, you know, had more staying power than maybe the media perceived. That you know, beyond the initial flash, that there continued to be successions of bands playing this music in slightly different ways.
1: I mean, I would say back then I didn't really, didn't question it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got kind of caught up in it and didn't really question where it would go or if would it yeah. stay. I mean, it just seemed like. You know, I, I think when I then when I heard the clash and started started reading the lyrics
2: mm-hmm.
1: and started reading my whatever was going on with me into their lyrics and then starting to realize, oh, shit, there's thousands of people in this town that are identifying with those lyrics. And then vice versa, even with Sham 69, like I remember going to I, I went to see Sham 69 at the Bridge House, which was a pub. In East London, um, I didn't really know too much about some of the idiots that followed Sham 69. Mm-hmm. And after that show, uh, I didn't go see Sham 69 again. <laughs> but uh, it was awesome going and and seeing that you know oh. Uh, by then, I'd already started realising oh the Sex Pistols seem to get this art university art crowd, Sham 69 oh they're getting these working class soccer mm
2: mm-hmm.
1: kids and then and then you got to clash. Oh the clash are kinda they're getting a bit of both. Mm-hmm. You know, so I started going away from the sex pistols, getting a little more I think clash was kind of the seed of some of the social justice stuff and, and, and
0: did you begin to develop political social consciousness at that time? Yeah. Through the through the lyrics and the Yeah.
1: Back? And then got exposed to, I went to a, a show at a squat on the Old Kent Road called The Ambulance Station. And uh, it was it was all crass, flux, zounds, it was one of those dirt, all of the A bands yeah, were yeah. playing. And went with a bunch, I was living with a bunch of punks by then. Went to that, and just, I had already, the clash, the clash done it, and I was... Not being a, a very academic person, um, even though reading lyrics was okay, but the idea of opening a book mm-hmm. and trying to read it. So I was very visually stimulated, and I went to The Clash, and they had you know, images just coming up. And yeah, I, yeah. I'm just there like, oh, man, they're telling. In these pictures, I can, I can see the story of the music. And then going to that show with Crass and that where... You've just got images and words,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I was just—I uh, was totally sucked up by it—and started, started seeing on the on the train, subway trains, the tube trains, the stations of the crash stencilled everywhere, mm-hmm. and so oh man, it's been crass They're like, yeah. You know, so like many, I got sucked up into—not sucked up—that's not the word—but exposed to. Oh well, what is the next step? You know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not interested in just the music, obviously, and just started kind of following that genre of your more anti sect, the anarcho punk bands, and, and just really identified as, as I was getting more aware of the, the issues around class and privilege, etc.
0: Where did you feel that you felt in, uh, fit in in the class? structure
1: i was in the, i was in the middle my my family was started off working class i i was born in what we call a one up one down which was you have a bet one bedroom upstairs a living room and a kitchen we had a we didn't have indoor plumbing we had outside and my dad had been raised in there with eleven brothers and sisters. <laughs> Christmas, where the fuck <laughs> did they all go? <laughs> um, but then we moved out to w- this 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 uh, new housing estate with where the, the so we we lived on a a row house where mm-hmm. all the houses were attached. So we moved to a semi-detached, which was one wall wasn't <laughs> connected. Right, right, That's right. luxurious. Um, and it was a nice house, so we were, you know, my dad had a good job, he had worked his way up, he was, he was a site foreman, so he was good, we owned it, we had a car because the company he'd worked for gave him a car, which a lot of people didn't have cars and it Mm -hmm. was just too expensive. So we were, we were kind of in that middle class, back then we didn't have middle class in England, Mm -hmm. you know, but, um. But then I I I think I identified identified more with especially probably because of, of learning abilities, mm-hmm. I struggled and faced probably similar abuse to what a lot of poor kids in the in the uh, urban settings. So I would go to. I mean, we didn't call them skinhead shows back then because Sham Sixty Nine wasn't a skinhead mm-hmm. band so but i was starting to see a lot of these kids and i kind of was going between the two of the anarcho punk but i often tell people that i would go out to dial house where crass lived because they had an open door policy you could go there and there was always food and you can go and just sit and listen (laughs) and i would go out there I'd sit and listen, but I didn't have a fucking clue what they were talking about. (laughs) You know, I just couldn't grasp my head around a lot of the deep anarchist. Did you feel that a
0: lot of those people in the anarcho-punk scene had come from an upper echelon, a higher... Right, and did you you personally feel any animosity towards them for coming from privilege and, you know, communicating in that way?
1: Again, I, I would say I didn't really understand it. Okay. Um, looking back now, I think I probably did, but rather than it just kind of left me out. Um, cause I didn't know who to go to, to ask questions. I didn't want to be like at school. I didn't want to be the idiot that has to ask questions about all these mm-hmm. ideas. Yeah, yeah. So rather than deal with it, I just went to bands I could identify with, Cockney Rejects, and, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, but then I found even within, you know, even within that Anarcho community, there were plenty of bands that were starting to address class politics. And, um, and I was, you know, I was dealing with my daily life of working a job, hanging out with, you know, most nights, we'd find us in this particular pub in, and, and then I was, I was in the uh, West London area of Notting Hill Gate. So um, there was always lots going on around race issues in that community. So I was really being exposed to the issues of race very early on and back then, London was not a nice place for people of color. And I'd faced that really early on because my dad working on building sites, he would he would be hiring a lot of people that were coming from West Indies, from a <clears throat> one particular person, Charlie, and his kids came from South Africa. And I got really heavily um, educated very early on about before apartheid had come kind of come out in the mainstream through Charlie and telling stories to my dad and me listening to what it was like
3: mm-hmm. growing
1: up in Soweto and And then my dad's <laughs> my dad's sister, one of his sisters, ended up in South Africa and she came to visit and I will never forget. She walked in the door, the first thing she she said was, Oh, you don't have any niggers working? <laughs> my dad just threw her out. Mm-hmm. And then as in the media we started seeing about South Africa and started, even within the punk community, you know, Chumbawamba was talking about it and people were talking about South Africa and apartheid. And then I was seeing a similar situation living in London, living in a poor black West Indian community where mm. they were facing a lot of the same Stuff, but on a different level. And that. were
0: you living in a squat in that community? Or no, was that I wasn't. Camp? No, no, I
1: was living in. Well, I no, I lived in a squat, but it was a bunch of us lived in the most <laughs> ridiculous squat because it was in one of the richest streets in in West London. And what had happened was this: uh, this this Saudi Arabian kid, his father had bought him the building. Mm-hmm. And then he basically done nothing with it. And one of the punk kids met him one night at a club or something. And the guy gave him the keys and we just moved in there. No, no. And he didn't need the money. So, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we moved in there. And it, it was funny because every Sunday, right at the top of the road was uh, What street was that? Man, I forgot the street. I was looking at it the other day to see... on on Google Earth or something to see what was going on. At the top of the street was um, where Prince Charles lived mm-hmm. with Di. And every Sunday their, their entourage would come down our street to go to church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of funny, His <laughs> house full yeah, of these yeah. <laughs> pumps and there's Charles and Di going by. <laughs> um, I didn't do a lot of squatting, we, we I was working, Everyone was getting unemployment at that time, so we could afford to have, housing was fairly cheap, especially when there was a whole bunch of punks. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the shows, the majority of shows, especially within <clears throat> the Anaco community, were usually at squatted places, and there were lots of parties going on at squatted houses and squatted halls. and. So I was being, I was heavily influenced, being in that community.
0: Were you in any bands in Britain?
1: No. Okay. no.
0: What What was it that? Uh, and forgive me if I'm skipping over anything. So let oh, me know. So but I like, what was it that brought you then over here, or did, what else happened, you know, to lead you to the states?
1: So I met an American girl in the the pub we went to one night. Um, <laughs> I think we had we get we get completely wasted in this pub and then we put on the most ridiculous 80s music and then mm-hmm. there'd just be all these punks doing sing-alongs. <laughs> I think it was during one of these sing-alongs, I think it was Soft Cell. Mm-hmm. We're all singing along. <gasps> yeah,
0: tainted Love or something? Yeah, yeah Tainted yeah. Love,
1: I eh? think. And then she came in and we just got talking and kind of started hanging out while she was she was going to, school in London. Uh, was she punk? Yeah, yeah. 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 She was from New Jersey. All right. Um, and she was going to NYU, which was at the time in New York. NYU was very much in part of the scene there and, mm-hmm. you know, especially W the radio show. But, uh, so she, she came back to America. She came back to visit a few times um i tell people we had this she'd phone me at a call box mm-hmm. in london and she reversed the charges back then you could reverse the charges and there weren't these computers so they didn't know it was going to a call to box charge. so we would spend hours talking <laughs> and often the the uh um the, the uh, oh, forgot the receptionist would come mm-hmm. on and be like
0: Oh, the operator. The operator.
1: Is this a a private line?
2: (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) of course. Sure it is.
1: So she came and visited a bunch of times. And then the last time in 84, early 84, I think, she came to visit. And we're getting to the end of the visit. And she said, I can't keep on doing this coming over here to see you. And I'm like, well, there's nothing I can do? I not don't have money to come, to go over there. And she's like, how about I'll buy you a ticket, and you come over. And this was two days before she left. Well, like, sure, I come over. <laughs> so so I you just, were
0: able to just drop all of. I dropped all of everything. Life there again. I dropped.
1: I left it. I left everything. And the plan was to come for two weeks, and then I was just the minute I got to New York City, I was just like. Wow, this is fucking incredible. So
0: the city, more than the girl, was the the thing that that was yeah. keeping you there. Yeah. Was that a relationship yeah. that that continued?
1: Yeah, we continued for a few years. Um, not sure how deep I should go into. That. Well, so we got married.
0: Okay. Oh, for legal purposes. For legal purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. think at this point that's probably fine <laughs> to say. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah, um, and. Yeah, she was going to NYU, and she had a dorm in Reuben Hall, which was on 5th Avenue and and 8th Street. In the the room above me was um, Dave Insurgent Mm -hmm. from Reagan Youth.
0: You were able to live in her dorm room?
1: Yeah, she would sneak me in, and then... I got to know one particular security guard and I knew when he worked and he was okay with me mm-hmm. coming in um, I didn't I didn't enjoy the dawn just I don't think I liked being around so many intellectual mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> even talking with Dave <laughs> in search mm-hmm. it was like whoa <laughs> slow down Dave <laughs> you're above me
0: what was yeah. it about New York City that, that got you this excited? I mean, more so than, I mean, London is a, certainly a formidable yeah. city, so yeah. uh, wow. what was it about New York that gave it that advantage?
1: I think there was something, I'm, I'm one of them people, I'm very stimulated by the energy of others, mm-hmm. which is now that's I recognize it, especially because for the first time in my life I've moved to the country, and... I told someone the other day, for the first time for 52 years, I feel like I've actually slept and rested. Mm -hmm. Whereas I've pretty much spent my life being so stimulated by the energy of others, depending where I am. But I think that, that the energy in New York City was stimulating for me. But I think also I was treated, because I was English, And very early on because I was a punk that was English Uh yeah I can I was treated even though I wasn't in a band right (laughs) I was treated but the
0: accent yeah Yeah. I go
1: in a pub like um, downtown Beirut it was a pub a punk play punk punk, uh, bar on First Avenue and 10th Street I wouldn't have to buy any drinks all night Oh, I just <laughs> had to open my mouth <laughs> <laughs> just, I totally got caught up in like you know, oh wow I'm uh, <laughs> you know, I'm someone here where I n- not felt like anyone not that I really I mean I didn't want to be necessarily someone special
2: mm-hmm.
1: but it it's stimulating, you know. Yeah, yeah that's And right. and and there was just so much going on in New York City at that time, you know. I'd walk down the street, see see Rick Ocasek and, and like Billy Idol walking down a road or go walking to get weirder. <laughs> yeah. And then I started going to Seabs.
0: And then What bands were you seeing in New York at that time when you got there? You
1: first got there? Ramones. Uh, actually, we were going out to, because her, f- her, her mum lived out in New Jersey in uh, this little town called Florham Park, which is kind of northern New Jersey. So we'd actually go out there quite a bit and actually managed to get a job out there at a nursery. Um, we lived out there for a little while, prior to, between between her getting out of school and then moving kind of real to a, an apartment we'd go out to New Jersey so I was going to there was a a punk club called Aldo's I think it was in like Passaic
2: mm-hmm.
1: And I'd go there some saw Major Conflict Misfits Channel 3 I don't know they would have they were kind of it was Aldo's was a small small club mm-hmm. you know it was so interesting going to new York city and you know going to a rock hotel show i like wow, oh, damn you know punk's this popular mm-hmm. <laughs> you know the kids coming from all over the place um, and then i met then then So i was living i was we got an apartment on first avenue above this bar called downtown beirut um started meeting all the characters you know had to deal with harley and john blood
0: <laughs> uh what were your feelings about the dealing with them
1: oh uh, yeah they they tried to roll me yeah <laughs> get my boots but they didn't get them okay. um
2: yeah
1: i didn't have a lot of they were there thing I started to get to know Roger from Agnostic Front pretty well, and and then when when the whole nausea thing happened, how did
0: how did that come to be?
1: Um, I was at a I was at CBGB's, and John, the bass player, he came up to me, and I was living at the time, so I had moved out from my partner and there was an art gallery on right across from CBGB's I can't remember the name of the street but there so there was some punks lived in one of the apartments this art gallery this guy owned the whole building Um, and then he had a little cocaine business He'd often have punks live there to basically run his cocaine for him. I mean, at the top of the building, there was this little attic area. And one of the girls told me, oh, you should come over and you could stay in this attic area.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you come over late at night, he won't know And if you leave during the day. So I just started living up there. And then he, he found out I was living up there. And he offered me a deal. There was a. He was in the process of renovating one of these fancy art spaces up top. But he said, "Well, you can live there if you do some running for me." Mm-hmm. So I was like, "Ah, sure." So I actually started running drugs for him.
0: How did that How did that operation work? I mean, what What were you delivering to customers, or how? I mean, yeah. that? So
1: he would, he would have, he'd get orders. I don't know how but he just used to give me packages yeah and then i'd and the main uh, it was really interesting the main business was actually wall street oh really so i would go and deliver coke in the morning
0: i can't imagine that you're a particularly inconspicuous looking person i mean you probably look you know yeah
1: (laughs) yeah i don't know i didn't i didn't care about it then and It was a very weird time, so I, was, I, would take, I would take coke down to Wall Street, I'd go, go into these businesses mm-hmm. and I'd, the receptionists would be there, I oh, would package for so and so. And they would know,
0: everybody would know. know, know they yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: and I'd just drop it off or I'd go up to Midtown.
0: And this is pre-crack, right? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Did you see a lot of drug use within the, that punk community at that time?
1: yeah mostly alcohol but i mean i was growing up in london i pretty early on got into speed Mm -hmm. pretty much everyone done speed back and did you continue continue that i continued that did you Um, find
0: that it was an addictive problem or more of a recreational use
1: for me it was recreational i don't have an addictive personality Mm -hmm. which I'm extremely thankful for I've tried everything um, and so many other people got sucked up for whatever reason it was recreational and if if I had money to buy it Mm -hmm. I do it if I didn't I could go without
2: right
0: Um, I'm always curious for, for people who have had the experience with drugs did you ever find that there was anything very beneficial about, say, use of psychedelics or something that maybe brought you to any kind of a greater uh, understanding or increased your perception in, in some way?
1: Psychedelics were not good for me. Um, I'm hyperactive mm-hmm. and I have the most crazy, vivid imagination, right. so my times with psychedelics were fucking terrible. So all
0: trips equal bad trips?
1: All trips were bad trips. But I love or loved uppers. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason being, and I still do it today, I'm still somewhat hyperactive, but not what I used to be. At the end of the day, I drink coffee to calm me down, to even me out. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think doing all those uppers actually balanced me somewhat yeah yeah but they gave me this you got this nice euphoric especially when when i got introduced to cocaine i mean it speeds one thing but cocaine was a whole that feeling of euphoria
0: Mm -hmm. and which you'd like i take it i I enjoyed it yeah Yeah, yeah.
1: but i i liked the i mean i think it just went along with the stimulation for whatever reason i wanted to be continuously stimulated at Mm -hmm. that time it was accessible to me. Um, and just like in, it, it was in, in London, Like, I remember the first time I went to get hash. And I was going to this place called St. Stephen's Gardens in Notting Hill Gate. And I remember telling someone, Oh, I'm going down to St. Stephen's Gardens. They are like, Don't go down there. And what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Now, that's where all the Jamaican gangs are. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? You know, i went down there and sure i was you know buying from guys with dreadlocks and yeah i never, i never understood that like that fear yeah, you know yeah. and before i knew it i became the person who was picking up for everyone else because i wasn't afraid to sit down with a person that was different than me mm-hmm. you know yeah. and and the same happened in new york city like I, I got somewhat accepted, and a lot of this I haven't really talked about, but I got accepted by Puerto Rican gang members that were pretty big names on the Lower East Side, and after I left, they finally, their businesses got taken down.
0: And you think it was just because you were just willing to talk to them and communicate with them? Yeah, that, and not that, fear. That's all that it really took. And not fear. Yeah, and, yeah.
1: And, and I think part of it was they played up on that fear. You know when the when the White Bridge and Tunnel crowd came yeah, in, yeah. they wanted. I think they got off on this fear of you know. Yeah,
0: you're from another motherfucking country. Yeah. It's not a Bridge and Tunnel. There's an Atlantic Ocean.
1: And and, and a lot of the, a lot of the the other ethnicities on the Lower East Side, Dominican, etc. Thought we were crazy. You know, oh these these kids with spiky hair walking around our streets, mm-hmm. they gotta be nuts. I mean, I I always say to people, like, it was a crazy place, like, (laughs) Lower East Side was, but for some reason, we fit, I fit in, and even though I didn't feel crazy, they thought I was crazy, Mm -hmm. and why the fuck would a crazy person be living on our street if they're not crazy (laughs) enough to, it was kind of like, you know, every now and again, someone would test you, you might have to stand your ground, but pretty much I would say more so within the punk community.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I was having to hold my own than actually with the, the yeah, Puerto yeah. Ricans or Dominicans. So, so that relationship carried on, and I did get involved in the drug trade, um, just because it was—it just seemed so easy and natural, no. and I, I somehow I always. I somehow came up with. And I think we, we we maybe all do this with whatever we do. You come up with some righteous reason.
0: Yeah, yeah, oh,
1: everything. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to. I wanted to have good. I didn't cut what I was getting. Right. I wanted it to have good quality.
0: <laughs> Wall Street yuppies were very happy about this.
1: <laughs> and and bring it to people that didn't want to deal with. Those people—it's mm-hmm. uh, kind of ridiculous. <laughs> but, but, and and I got it that so I was involved. I was I was uh, I was doing a lot of things. You know, there was my political involvement, which for whatever reason I—I I think a lot of kids, drugs were rebellious. Mm-hmm. You know, they yeah, they were anti-establishment. So doing them or selling them. Was, yeah, fuck the man,
0: you know. Surely the yuppies were in complete agreement as it went right up their fucking noses. But
1: then, you know, then I had to face the hard reality of it.
0: Well, you must have seen being in in New York at that time, a lot of people that you were close to going down the toilet from yeah. the drugs. I mean, yeah. uh, was there a plague of, of overdoses amongst the people was, you were close with? Yeah,
1: and people, people like, there was a skinhead guy called Frenchie, um had was a roadie with agnostic front. And just watching him go down here and then finally overdose in, Um I was kind of in New York at the early early days of AIDS, mm-hmm. which everyone focused on that it was a gay community.
0: Yeah, so it can't, it can't affect yeah, us. But
1: yeah. then in our community... Um, and there's there's a lot of people who I'm not going to give names but to this day died from AIDS Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, but the community hasn't ever because of that oh were were they fags is that why they died no it was actually intravenous drug use use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but people still don't want to bring up You know, my friend English Mark who was my I would say was my mentor of the Lower East Side. He was an English Jewish skinhead who lived in a squat on 7th Street. And me and him just hit it off. He had a beautiful pit bull called uh, Blitz. Seems
0: an appropriate name. Yeah,
1: yeah. And Mark was awesome. He had a real street street cred. And was known by everyone, but yeah, seeing people, friends. I think Frenchie was an eye opener, and then actually, I got out of the trade um, when I was I was with Roger from Agnostic Front, and which we were we were going up to a party up in Westchester, I think, and at the same time we were going to do a big pickup. Mm-hmm. Of drugs, and we went up there, and I had a bad feeling he was driving he was driving a a low rider with Florida license plate uh-huh. and i didn 't go in that. I took mine, which was just a Chevy Astro van, I think back then.. Well, we went up there, we were at a party and he came over and was like, oh, we got to go do a pickup. And I'm like, ah, oh, it was a good party. So I'm like, ah, oh, I'm going to stay here and, mm-hmm. you know, you can go. And he took Freddy him, Mabel. They went and did his pickup. On the way back, the local cop saw the Florida plates. Came up with, I think it was either he didn't indicate on a certain turn or mm-hmm, something. No, yeah, yeah. Pulled him over. Done an illegal search, but that didn't come out until... Actually turns out that the 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 cop that pulled him over was the son of the local sheriff. The judge in the town was the father of the sheriff who was <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> so, yeah. so he got pulled over and they found a stash and he ended up doing three years for that before finally overturning it on illegal search. But I, I think until then, I, like many, are just, oh, this is easy, I'm, you know, I'm never going to get caught. You
0: weren't concerned that if you got got, that you were going back to the little foggy island again? No, I hadn't a... really
1: thought about it. I just felt like i never get caught. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, I'm so good at this, you know. And I even had the experience one night I was working. So when I... F- Man, I'm going all over the place here. When I first got to New York City... I was having a hard time finding a job. And it was easy to live on the street then, um, but I did want to get something legitimate. Mm -hmm. So I started going down on third street, third street between first and A then. It was, there were a number of moving companies in a row and you could go down there about five in the morning, line up and if there were jobs, the boss would come out, pick you out, and you'd go off and move furniture. And I was doing it for $3 an hour, and then we get tips. Um, so I started doing that, um, just so I had something legitimate. I still wasn't, I hadn't got married, so I wasn't legal as such. So, I, um, Oh, where was I going with this? I totally forgot where I was going with it. <laughs> wow! I lost my trainer thought Derailed. <laughs> yeah. Huh.
0: Well, we can come back to it yeah. if it comes <laughs> to you. I guess we should go into the. We were talking about the formation of Nausea, how that ah. came to be.
1: So yeah, and oh, then, we, yeah. then we went into so, the yeah. wonderful world of
0: drugs. So going back to that, uh, uh, yeah. How yeah, did, how John
1: came uh, up, and John was the bass player. He had talked to some other people. Um Vic from well, it was Sacrilege back then and Reagan Youth mm-hmm. and then this guy Pablo was a drummer you talked to them about starting a band um, influence kind of the anarcho punk scene in England there so, weren't a
0: lot of bands like that in the States at the time Would that would you say that that's correct
1: yeah not that many I mean plenty of bands were kind of following the dischargey
2: Mm-hmm.
1: style thing i think more so i mean there was apple around yeah, doing yeah, yeah. on the west coast you had you had some but yeah not really it hadn't really the deep political kind of because of yeah. crucifix yeah 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 there was yeah i'd say crucifix was probably pretty big influence for nausea um but yeah he just came up and asked me would you be interested in Singing for this band I'm putting together, do they
0: like, want you because you have the I accent think it was that, because yeah, of the yeah.
1: accent, yeah, I said oh, i never I never thought about it, or, but obviously, I'd seen so many other people doing it, oh it, yeah, yeah,
0: I'm sure you can you know you have the moves and, in your head that you can
1: yeah, and i w by then, I was just interested in getting the same, like, well, you know. I'm not a good writer, but surely if I just write my experiences and what I see through my eyes, like, mm-hmm. what can be wrong with that? I, I don't think I had this vision that 30 years later people would be reading those lyrics to you or identifying with them or that we would be anything but a band on the Lower East Side playing at little squats, you mm-hmm. know? And,
0: Yeah, thanks to your band, there's been a million butt-flap, you know, like patches (laughs) (laughs) that Crusty Squatters will be wearing until the end of time. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's how it started. What, 85, 86, we rehearsed and then started kind of playing all the early shows. It was always a benefit, which was how Squatter Rock came out of just doing all those benefits. By then, I yeah. Why don't you explain what yeah. Squatter art uh, was? Okay. I mean,
0: what the idea was.
1: So I, I, um, I was living in the art gallery. That kind of ended. I didn't have anywhere to live, and some people I knew were opening up a new building, an empty building on Eighth Street between B and C. Um, a couple of doors up from there used to be actually a club down there called 8bc which was an awesome club um but people early on were scared to go down there
0: you're not talking about abc not rio right? no no oh. eight
1: it was called 8bc oh, 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 okay APC. yeah okay, not yeah, yeah, abc 8bc yeah, yeah. um 327 east 8th street so i went down it's cool It's place to stay so i moved in there um Started getting involved in in the squatter community on the Lower East Side, realizing wow, there's so many people having to live in these buildings, and that there could be more people, and and you know just seeing the um, the way the Puerto Rican community, Dominican community, ethnic community, Lower East Side was was living and just the way the city was treating. You
2: know, mm-hmm.
1: It was like the Lower East Side didn't exist. It was yeah. so fucking interesting to... to just discard a whole group of people. And, and then, real, you know, studying the history of the Lower East Side. And, oh, wow. Every, every ethnic community has started off on the Lower East Side mm-hmm. and been treated like shit. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: And somehow found their way into... <laughs> often through crime
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the early days, but then assimilating to the American uh, idea. So moved into the squat, um, Norsi was going, we were playing a lot of benefits, often for a new squat had opened, they needed money for roofing, for a new ladder, so we do a show. Mm-hmm raise some money.
0: So the idea was to generate funds to so promote usually a yeah, project, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and like, you
0: seem to be pretty handy in you know, what you've been able to yeah, build. Yeah, so did you yeah. be, were you able to bring the, the, the builder skills of your father forward into the, the squatting scene?
1: I mean, I've done some on our own. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I worked on our building, but... Um, no, I wouldn't say I really worked on other people's...
0: What were your living conditions like in this squat? I mean, did you move to a lot of different squats or were you mostly- No, within?
1: I stuck there.
0: So what, were you, what did your living conditions you know begin as and then ultimately what did you manage to um, achieve there?
1: So my apartment, half the apartment had a roof. What's on the other half? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> the roof had gone. So I don't, you probably know, but maybe I'll just explain to people what happened on the Lower East Side back then. So, Buildings on the Lower East Side were kind of put up for auction, and a lot of uptown folks, they were at prices where anyone could basically or a lot of people of, of privilege could afford mm-hmm. to buy a building. Right. So they were buying these buildings, not with any plan to renovate them or anything, because the community to outsiders was a war zone. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were thinking down the road that maybe something will change in that community. So they were buying these buildings and then drug dealers would come in and often start dealing drugs out of building. You could go on any block and there would be a building and there would be a brick would move out the wall, Mm -hmm. a can would come down, you put your money in, there would be a line up the block and you get your drugs. So to stop that, these la- these uh, building owners would pay local kids. I think it was fifty dollars to go and firebomb the buildings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Gut, you know, just so that the insides were gutted. This
0: it happened something like this in the in the Bronx before? Right, where yeah. the, all the buildings were just yeah. being burned yeah. Yeah. constantly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, then you know, squatters, people that needed homes, started moving into buildings, and they would still... Firebomb buildings, even with people in. Twice, our building got local kids try to firebomb ours. Did
0: did these kids know you? I mean, did they have any interaction with with you people living in? They they
1: saw us on the streets, and they just think
0: like, "Oh, is a bunch of scumbags" or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, it was such a. I was telling someone else like. For, for, for fifty dollars, I could get someone's legs broken. For a hundred dollars, I could get someone murdered. Pretty good deal. That was what it was like then. <laughs> you know, it was to kill someone at that time. There was no. It's, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, so half the building was had no roof because there had been a fire,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and usually the fire department. Especially when there were buildings that people lived in that were squatted, the fire department would always take longer getting to them. Um, But our building, half the building had been burnt, so the whole back section had no roof over it, but the front had a roof. Um, And when it rained, we'd have tarps that we'd try and put across. There was no stairway above ours, so we put in a new stairway up there. Um, but we were mainly doing shows at other places to raise money and then at the same time Ralphie boy who was living in a squat across the road from my squat, um, he was kind of following nausea around and rode in and doing his thing and we'd all be hanging out in Tompkins Square every night. He was the one who came up with the idea oh, why don't we do a, a record to kind of thank the bands that have been doing all these benefits, mm-hmm. and we'll do it under the name Squatter Rock. So I was like, ah, oh, that's a cool idea. i I'd have been working, so I had a little money. Now I had money from the drug trade.
0: Had Nausea recorded it yet at this point?
1: We had gone to Dom Fury's and done a, a demo. I think that was it by then. I don't think we had recorded yet, just this Dom Fury demo. Mm-hmm. And then, so we put out Squat Rock 1, and that's kind of when I started getting into, oh, well, how are we going to distribute it? And
0: what, what bands were on the compilation?
1: Damn, who was on the first one? Huh.
0: I know, it's been a long goddamn time. Goddamn,
1: who was on that first one? The Sisters? Radix? Mm. Yuppie side? Were they on the first one? Was Nourja? I mean, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have this record in my house, but I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think don't have, I have the, record. the records. Yeah, I don't remember it was on the first one.
0: I guess it doesn't,
1: yeah. doesn't matter that much, but anyway, <laughs> I, so, yeah. So we put it out, and I started kind of distributing it. I think I put an ad in MRR, um, started distributing it. <laughs> we had this really sweet deal um, a, lot of, a lot of kids in the punk community worked at Tower Records, mm-hmm. so, so we were taking the records into Tower Records. Basically, all the kids would steal them back,
3: uh-huh.
1: and, then and then we you get paid, and sell we get paid uh, and we, so we'd done that for a while. Finally, they called on when I think they checked their inventory, <laughs> they weren't actually <laughs> selling them. And finally, they, but that got kind of outside of New York City, started making contacts elsewhere, and we decided to do two the relationship I'm it's hard to think back what what was doing at that time I know we had started playing out of town a bit we had done a few shows with agnostic from had some pretty heated confrontation with right-wing is.
0: Yeah, it seems like that they would, they would be two very separate audiences, at least in the way that maybe looking back one would perceive this as, you know, mm-hmm. you're a very lefty, uh, anarcho audience and you know, Agnostic Front being a more right-wing, probably a lot of skinheads. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting, I mean, how, how do the bands get along with each other and then with an audience that, that in theory, would be split and not getting on with one another?
1: No, I was thinking about I was thinking about this the other day because I'm still really close friends with Nick from YDL, Mm the
0: Youth Defence League. Youth Defence League,
1: who, who, I don't know how much people. Know about stuff that he was involved. Yeah, in. Yeah,
0: I don't know that, uh, that many of the listeners would necessarily know about. I mean, okay. if you want to give a brief sketch of like what what it is you're talking about, because
1: so uh, so Nick was close with Ian Stewart from Screwdriver, and worked on trying to bring Screwdriver over here, mm-hmm. um, which was complete opposite to what <laughs> I was interested. In. But for I, I can't really explain the lower east side at that time. Maybe maybe. I'm one of them optimistic people that can look multi-generation and see that inside someone rather than discard them for what they what they might believe in at that time mm-hmm. that planting seeds or being around someone in the future they will not be into that anymore and then just the lorry Side.
0: I mean, I would think that with all of these different types of people all kind of clustered amongst one another, that you, one would need to have some level of tolerance to yeah. have to deal with all these different yeah. sorts of folks.
1: I think early on I realized, well, they have to tolerate me. Yeah, yeah. You know, they have to tolerate me going to a flag burning in Tonkin Square Park mm-hmm. um, that may go into a whole fist fight but, but often it was the outsiders that were the catalysts. We were actually, like you say, we were tolerating each other. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but there's but ma- people coming in from Jersey or the outer boroughs or something who have a much more, you know, almost like a Stalinist view yeah. of this very And regimented- I think it's
1: because of what was going on at the Lower East Side, we were under attack. Police hated all of us. He didn't, skin, skinhead punk, mm-hmm. Dominican, whatever. Yeah. We were all hated. We needed each other. We, at a certain tolerable level, had to watch each other's back. Mm-hmm. Now, when you get into the pit, an agnostic front was playing, and Neil's there dancing with a crass. Maybe I'll get a smack in the head. Yeah.
2: yeah. The
1: rest of the time, so it's very. It was an interesting time, like yeah, because I knew, I knew, Roger was Cuban.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I. I
0: mean, you're saying that he's selling drugs, at least for some period, and going to jail. So this is not necessarily behavior that a clean-cut, right-wing, patriotic American yeah. skinhead is going to mm. find to be mm-hmm. exemplary behavior yeah, yeah. for, you know, their idol. Yeah, with you know, with a boot coming through the flag and, and all of this.
1: I think for for you know, there were those. I I saw the good in people. Mm-hmm. There were those people I didn't think were good people um, Vinnie Stigma you know a fucking wonderful person you know like once you and, and there's that there's the image mm-hmm. that a lot of bands play up to the image and then there's the real person to me I, I, I think I've always wanted to be the same person um, I wasn't an entertainer I didn't go on stage to entertain I wouldn't say I was an educator, but I wanted to be genuine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I wanted to be honest. If you wanted to come and talk to me outside, you could. If you wanted to come to the squat and hang out, you could. You'd see I was the same person, even though I did, <laughs> I guess I have my business going on at night and stuff. But, um, but yeah, this le- level of tolerance is an interesting
0: I think, I mean, maybe in the, now in an internet age, when everything that somebody does publicly is analyzed and dissected by, by so many people, it's, it's really hard to do something that is going to rub the fur backwards of other people mm-hmm. because there's going to be so many people who, at least in their little typings, mm-hmm. are going to come out about that. But, I mean, with less information being disseminated and more direct uh, confrontation, if there's going to be any, you know, other than, like, the Maximum Rock and Roll Letters page, maybe mm-hmm. that allows for, you know, for mm-hmm. people to go in some, you know, peculiar directions or different directions that, that maybe now would be more people would be focused mm. in on it and, and with laser accuracy
1: yeah yeah that it was MRI. i think they had someone wrote in or there was a piece about agnostic front mm-hmm. about them being i That's think they had just come out with victim in pain and there was the image of the holocaust and and but then i just wasn't seeing it you know, I'd hang out with Roger and Amy. I wasn't hearing, like, nigga this, nigga that, do this, do that. I wasn't hearing was, it. Was
0: there a racial element to, to what they were doing, at least at that time? Or was it more of a working class? Uh? Well, I would
1: say working class. Some members came on that were part of some, some racist organizations. Um... I'd say most of the people then, it was, it was more the whole American pride thing. And that, that, that to me can, me, foot soldiers can be, there's a lot of followers. Mm-hmm. And if you get someone who says, oh, well, ev- we should all be concentrating on people of color right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah.
1: Um... Just a lot of, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of young, young, edu- uneducated from working class. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of these kids have multi-ethnic backgrounds.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: And maybe they're struggling to find their identity. They want to be accepted by the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, maybe they started realizing at a certain age that, oh, shit there is a dominant culture here and...
0: Yeah, yeah sometimes mm-hmm. it's, uh, I have no personal problem with American pride or patriotism. I know a lot of people in the scene do, but sometimes it, it seems peculiar that people who would be at the lowest strata of the society and are not receiving any of the benefits of being an American would be so proud of their mm-hmm. Americanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it seems a bit mm. peculiar.
1: What you know, one thing I, over time, have kind of seen, I think... Maybe this comes from my own experience and meeting other expatriates that live. When you live away from where you were born and your roots are, all of a sudden you get this patriotic urge. And what I, what I have kind of thought has happened in America, most people don't belong here, their roots are not here. You know, over time, they found they may have been here multi generations, mm-hmm. but deep down, not many people are part of the native community, indigenous community of this country.
0: Indigenous meaning what? Native, Americans native or, American? Native Yeah, but that that seems to be so 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 far in the past. Oh that, yeah,
1: yeah, that, yeah. But I think, and I don't know. I, again, I've kind of thought seeing how the African American black community is searching for identity. Mm-hmm that, because I'll talk to Italians, I'll talk to Irish, they're more patriotic about the land they're from, though they've never ever been there.
0: Yeah, 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 I'd certainly, yeah, understand people, everybody's, yeah, oh, I love Italy, it's, but can't fucking speak Italian. Maybe never gone, maybe never even left yeah. New Jersey or New York and, and there's, would, a, there's a reason why, I mean, this would be my ancestors as well, who are Sicilian. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a reason why they elected to leave the boot or wherever and mm-hmm. come to the great American experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they made a choice.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I just think there's this, there's this... There's this want... This want to belong here. They, we, lots of people do belong here. They've mm-hmm. been here most... But they're not completely here. Mm-hmm. So then... They have, they, they use this pride, either the flag or to have this sense, this yeah. deep sense of belonging. And I, I, I also, I'm, I'm not, it was a shock to me to come here and see American flags everywhere. I come from a culture where you don't see a lot of English flags.
0: Yeah, I hear this sometimes from people yeah. from other countries who are really taken aback by yeah. the number of flags because maybe there's a holiday and the flag will come out mm-hmm. for that particular holiday and then otherwise it's not seen. But, nah. Anyways, I guess yeah. we'll move, move back into the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, what, when did you exit uh, Nausea and what was the reason why you left the band? Because the band continued yeah. after you for, I guess, some years. But what was your... I
1: think I left in... 88 or 89. Um, so
0: it was it about three, three or four years in? Yeah. In the, in the, okay.
1: I think... I'm not sure what was going on with me at that time, but I know we've been doing a lot of benefit shows. I really enjoyed the benefit shows. And this is my own... I was working, I had started working at a nightclub, an after hours nightclub called Save the Robots. Uh, English Mark had got me a job there. Pretty stable, I I got to work weekends, had the whole week off. Pretty good money for what I was doing. Um, So I didn't need money from playing music. Mm -hmm. And probably I was being selfish. But we were doing all benefits, I loved it. We we got offered a rock hotel show with bad brains, and I said, "Well, the only way I'll do it is if we're going to give a chunk of the money. I think we were getting two hundred dollars, which a seemed like a vast, some of vast sum of money. <laughs> I said, if we give one hundred and fifty dollars to there were uh, I think fifth some people, some squatters that open up the fifth street squat." And they needed some stuff. I said if we give $150 to them. There was a little bit of some heated discussion about it. But agreed. And then I was at a rehearsal. And I believe we had got offered. A paying gig. Show. And I had a reaction. To it. I think because. Everyone was. Interested in it. Mm -hmm. And it. I perceived it as the money was the attraction Mm -hmm. to doing this. It wasn't for any cause. It wasn't, maybe if it had been a show that was going to highlight something and we were going to get paid, Mm -hmm. but it was for nothing. It was just a show and I had a reaction and I turned around and said, I don't want to play any paying shows that just get us money. I just want to do benefit shows." We had a heated argument about it, and I walked out and said, I'm going to quit.
0: So you feel that at that time that some of the purity of the the vision of the band had been compromised by this desire for $200? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: I think it felt like a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And what was their counter-argument?
1: Oh, um, you know, that we got to pay for rehearsal, um, instruments, gas money, um, getting the shows, etc. etc. Did
0: you feel that that wasn't a legitimate concern? I th-
1: again, I think it's because of my, my, because financially I was secure,
0: mm-hmm. right? Yeah,
1: then why do we need them? And I think that. I was definitely living my world, creating them and us. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, there I am, listening to Flux of Pink Indians talking about the businessman taking a scene. Mm -hmm. Seeing it, and then coming to New York and playing a rock hotel show and hearing about this guy called Jerry Williams, who's... Who's rock, he was a rock hotel. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but these people that when I when I met them, they weren't punks. They didn't have any links to the social justice movements. We were, they were business people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That saw something that we were creating, and maybe it was. I was in, I didn't realize outside of New York City that this was becoming such a big thing. Yeah, yeah. That yes. everyone, all of a sudden, wanted to get their hand in This that, is what the kids are listening yeah. to.
0: We put it on for the kids and make money from it. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah.
1: And, you know, later on, years later, then you get the walk tour and you get, yeah
2: yeah, you band, know, and band,
1: now I yeah. see it again yeah. with this whole, like I was telling you, this like, midlife crisis where all of a sudden, oh i was there in 82 or 84 and yeah, yeah. hardcore this and cbg with that and
2: mm-hmm.
1: and everyone's
3: just like
0: it just sounds like the voices of insecurity trying to prove mm-hmm. their their validity through their you know experience yeah. uh, but then sometimes when, when i when people have a quest for purity it almost sounds like a stalinism where they're mm-hmm. they're purging out all of, of the elements that they perceive as being impure and a lot of times when this stalinists have these purges of mm-hmm. these so-called impure they're casting out their own potential allies because yeah. of these little yeah. infractions you know oh, time for you to have a self-criticism mm-hmm. in front of everybody yeah. which is a which is a nightmare world yeah. of like anarchist communism or yeah. something
1: no i don't i think i quickly realized oh, i i love this music i loved I'd started, I think I'd sp- started, no, I wasn't, I was doing Squatter Rock. I don't think Tribal War had started yet. Um, but we were putting on our own shows, like everything that, I mean, even for me playing CBGB was kind of somewhat difficult, mm-hmm. just because even though there were people working there that were from the community, it was owned by someone that, didn't really like our music yeah, yeah, fit yeah. in on a day when it were so um but it was this yeah i think i started realizing that man why am i being so pure
0: um because there's always someone a level away from you who is saying neil you know look at this he's charging an extra 25 cents for this yeah. seven inch what a dick
1: yeah 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 the i hate maximum was, rock and roll <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: Well, anyways, so. Uh, yeah, uh, so you left. I mean, that, yeah, was the, I left that was the point where you left mm-hmm. the band. Um, was there acrimony, or, or were you all right with uh, the I was the, okay. There few?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I got a band going a few years later. Was
0: Jesus Crust?
1: No, actually, oh, okay. before Jesus Crust, it was a band called Slaughter. We dropped the name because I didn't know there was a, this metal band, glam metal band called Slaughter. But we started Slaughter, which was... I think John from Nausea was drumming, Roy who had been, the, was now the drummer for Nausea was playing guitar, playing guitar or bass, and then Ralphie was singing with me, and then, oh man, I don't remember the other guys man. so we started Slaughter, that went on for a little while. Did
0: you record? As, as yeah that we, d-
1: we there was some there is something out there, some compilation or something um and then Jesus Christ started I think John and Roy by then had got too busy I think nausea was doing some quite a bit of touring then, so they they stepped down and then it's tough for me to think back and who's who but we got some new members, and we done some recordings.
0: How long did uh, Jesus Christ exist for?
1: I'm sure it was a small amount of time. It feels like everything felt like so long back there. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure it was just a blink of an eye. I'd I have say. an
0: EP. Is it one where there's like I'm nailed right in or something, and the the part, the whole of the record, the thing comes through Christ wiener or something like that That, i i could be confusing this with another so there is
1: a g there was a jesus cross jesus cross from no hold on yeah there was a jesus cross from boston how could there be two bands with that name (laughs) (laughs) yeah there was jesus cross from boston boy i don't remember what our record covers Hmm. i'll have to look online yeah i I have to look online for all my history i should have done more research (laughs) before i did the interview of what what ep i'm thinking of in my house uh. and then and then when jesus Christ ended i was hanging out with this guy todd we had started doing tribal war had kind of got going tribal war kind of spawned out of squatter rock
0: and tribal war you were doing it was a label and a distro right mm-hmm. okay yeah and was this uh, was this purely your operation running that
1: yeah yeah um and then with todd todd came to New York and from Pennsylvania and he had a background in screen printing so the first thing we started doing was patches and we done fucking thousands of patches so and
0: these are patches for all different bands or just for your own just all different bands yeah yeah
1: yeah those bands never got a fucking thing out of us (laughs) But we were, selling, we were selling way cheap back then. It was twenty five cents a patch. Yeah, These those days, patches. I see them going for four dollars. Ubiquitous. Everybody
0: had those <laughs> patches. Some people were in a coat entirely festooned <laughs> with that. Yeah.
1: And that was, I think, I was doing a newspaper, kind of like I took what we were done at Squatter Rock, newspaper format for our distro, so I had all the patches and then, whatever bands I had released, then. We started doing t-shirts, started doing t-shirts for bands as well as... um, And we started warning. (coughs) We put out one, one seven inch. And then, I don't know how long warning went on for, not that long. And then started final warning. Um, Got to tour a few times because I, by then, I was starting to set up tours for bands on tribal war and help get bands from Europe over here And bands were contacting me Um, and it was always I was still trying to back then I was like you had said like I was always trying to do everything so pure Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: you know I just thought oh well we can do we can tour the US and Play every DIY space.
0: You probably shouldn't drive a van though, because you'll be polluting and <laughs> buying uh, yeah. gasoline. can you considered walking yeah. on an entire tour, <laughs> yeah. carrying an instrument?
2: If you Bicycles. really meant it, <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: and you know the reality of. Sure, you can play small places, but some a lot of people people might not come, and you're not going to get paid. Yeah. Man. And then, how do you get when you've got to put gas in a vehicle? and you've got to feed a group of people, how do you get from A to B? Yeah,
0: I think that kind of fevered purity wound up with something that cut, eroded a lot of straight-edge people who, yeah. were, who felt so strongly about something that they, there's nowhere that they could go but to collapse and you know turn against the thing that they felt that strongly about because yeah. they could never live up to anybody's standards, yeah. let alone on their own. Yeah. Um, did you feel a connection to the, the crusty scene that was you know, happening at the time? Because you, you certainly have a lot of kids who were coming in to s- squat mm-hmm. New York who were you know, co- maybe coming from more affluent backgrounds mm-hmm. or were heavily involved in drugs or theft or other you know, questionable behavior. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the type of bands you were playing in and distributing, those folks would be gravitating mm-hmm. towards them and, and you know, what you were doing.
1: Yeah, I definitely, I think at the early while still living in england you know following a lot of the and being around the anaco community um which spawned a lot of the the big kind of crust bands that all of a sudden you know anti-sect is kind of i think of them as being one of the real early crust mm-hmm. you know yeah with the look and that but then when I came to the US it was really taking off in England. Um, and then the labels where well, you had Peaceville and Peaceville and lots of other labels. Um, I was I was interested in the music. It didn't feel like they had a lot to, I guess Doom had I don't know I Maybe, I think I was still, I was so influenced from the Aniko scene. Um, a lot of the crust stuff, the drugs, the alcohol. Mm-hmm. I was starting to get away from that. I was actually not drinking, I had had some issues around drugs. I had a, a heart murmur, my heart gave out.
0: You think this was facilitated by the use of the speed? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And um, I went into hospital. And the doctor said, if you, if you keep on the way you are, you, your heart's going to give out. And what I found was it was easy to stop doing the, the drugs, except whenever I was drunk, I wanted to do drugs. Mm-hmm. So my answer was, well, I'll just give up alcohol. So I gave up alcohol, gave up cigarettes, gave up drugs, and it was easy. But then being in this scene, yeah, yeah there's an expectation of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you look, there's when I started touring in Europe with Final Warning, you'll see me with pictures of beer, mm-hmm. beer bottles, but it's actually water in the <laughs> bottles.
0: Did you feel like you had to keep <laughs> up appearances? I feel I had
1: to keep up appearances. <laughs> yeah, you know, like. And it got to the point where I could act, I could act drunk because it seemed like that's what people wanted. And I got totally sucked into <laughs> that, like, well, give them what they want. <laughs> yeah. And plus, I think it was, I noticed that people were a lot more, a lot easier. You know, it's, it's kind of that like classic when you have a person who's not drunk walk into a room full of drunk people. Mm-hmm. All those drunk people know it. Yeah, yeah. And... It's actually you, the individual, that feels uncomfortable. But they somehow feel uncomfortable. And they'll either stop talking or not talk to you. And I found when I went to Europe, it was so much easier to act drunk. And they would feel so at home and comfortable that we could talk about things. So I just went with it.
0: I guess you had had enough practice actually being (laughs) drunk. So it wasn't like you had to yeah.
1: Um, I, I wasn't a fan of getting drunk. I had a bad experience, <laughs> we, we had a bad experience, we, we got dusted one night before we went on stage.
0: Dusted? Do you mean you took angel dust? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah.
1: PCP got fairly fairly popular in the punk scene, um, I think only in New York. Uh, for people that don't know, PCP is bear tranquilizer, and people found that if you smoked it, you fucking became a bear. I mean, who is?
0: Is that a way that you want, that, that an individual wants to feel? I mean, when you describe that to me, and I've never done PCP, I don't think I'd want... Why would I want to do that? What the fuck am I going to do with that? I ripped the wall out of my house or I something? I mean,
1: again, it wasn't something someone offered me. Yeah. Something that was laced with PCP. I smoked it. Yeah. I think the same for most people who are offered crack, like, you know oh yeah, I'll try it, mm-hmm. you know, you don't really think about the effects or um, I mean, I, the PCP, I enjoyed it, so one night we were playing a show and we all smoked it before we went on oh, I fucking shit. now I think we went out, I think I mugged a yuppie <laughs> yeah, Angel Dust is, Angel Dust was kind of, I think at the same time Crack was Crack was starting in the ghettos. Mm-hmm. Angel dust was being experimented in more affluent or privileged communities, um, but I think angel dust went away because crack just crack was so cheap and. Not that it necessarily got into the punk scene.
0: Well, How how much uh, infiltration into punk did you see a crack when that came on the scene? (coughs) It seems to have hit lots of other communities, especially poor communities in the U.S., real hard. It it didn't really... didn't really... I think because we had... Punk still loved heroin or something?
1: I mean, heroin was there. Coke was still... And... I think we we could get it cheaper than most people. Mm -hmm. So... I think it, early on, crack had been demonized so much in the media that it, it somewhat alerted us. And heroin was just, yeah, that was... I was never a fan of heroin. I've done it. But again, heroin's somewhat of a downer.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not going to work So for it doesn't
1: yet. work with me. I would more likely shoot speed mm-hmm. than I would heroin. So I never got into it. But again, it destroyed a lot of people in the community, yeah. and continues to. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, well, I guess we should yeah. we should move on a okay. bit since we've been um, drugs
1: again. Yeah, no, no. just uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: we want to we want to. I guess eventually move towards the present. But right. uh, you, what was it then that that uh, inspired you to leave New York, and where did you go from there? I mean, did you come here to Oregon, or was was there were there other steps in between New York and, and no? Oregon?
1: I came to Oregon. Um, I was living in a warehouse out in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Um, Me and an old partner, Andrea, who was a tattooist, we had moved out to this, found this warehouse in Brooklyn, really reasonable rent back then. Um, And tribal war was, I was starting to put out a fair amount of records, so I needed some space.
0: Was it a profitable business?
1: No. Um, again, <laughs> it was one of the things, I had a job mm-hmm. that gave me enough money to to live on and then to keep pumping into tribal war. Because um, it seems
0: like it would take up a lot of time to do all of the mail order that would be yeah. involved with a label. Did you have, did Profane Existence do some distribution for you? Did you have a, yeah, a profane, relationship? Yeah. Okay, yeah, We basically
1: traded.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, and that's, I got really into the whole trading, you know. Yeah. I'm not sure there must've been other people doing it, but I was doing it worldwide, which was awesome. I didn't even, sometimes I wouldn't even necessarily listen to something first. It'd just be some new band come out in Poland and some kid yeah, yeah. says, can I take 10 of yours? Oh sure. And then back then we were all doing the glue in the stamps.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was yeah,
1: like, yeah. oh, yeah. free shipping all over the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why not? Um, that was, really, was really exciting to just be getting contact with bands all over the world, with individuals, with other labels. I remember tape and, trading with
0: people and, yeah. and I was, I'd never yeah, know it was, was awesome. coming in. It was yeah. just so exciting yeah. to hear all this Boxes stuff. Boxes would
1: arrive and to me it was like Christmas all the time. Like, and then it was exciting. then once I started... Following bands, if a band would play New York City, maybe they play in Philly the day before. So I drive down to Philly, meet them, set up the the distro. I'm glad
0: we mentioned Philly at least once in the, in the interview <laughs> yeah. since it's loud, fast Philly. Thank you. <laughs> and there's
1: the purpose. Um, and then, you know, up to New York the next day, maybe they'll go into Boston. So I follow them up to Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, that then turned into. Me and Christine Boltz from Sagan Latis. Christine had started living at the warehouse and helping with tribal war and doing tribal war. And, and then we had the opportunity to go on the road with the Vale, mm-hmm. which was quite a bit, a few years later, I'm skipping a lot, but that was really, that was, that was awesome. I really yeah, they were enjoyed it. fantastic. Yeah. Love those people, amazing people. It's funny because lately I've been thinking of a lot with the whole confederate flag issue um, just because Bo's really into the confederate flag and I think it was pretty popular with them. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what their thoughts are on it. I keep me in contact and be being like, so what do you think about this whole <laughs> confederate flag? But uh, that was really awesome, like taking the van on the road and just feeling like this family on the road. I enjoy being on the road. I hate the whole environmental consequence mm-hmm. of it, but there's something again. I think I was looking for some more stimulation. I was yeah. getting a little bored with New York City. Uh, a lot of the infighting scene, the Lower East side was not, you know, the place I had, mm-hmm. and I was. I think it affects me when I see communities be displaced.
0: Um, and you're talking about the late '90s now, right? I mean, or mid mid that '90s. That would be mid '90s. Mid
1: '90s, okay. Mid '90s. I'm going on the road and seeing what p- kids, adults, etc. are doing in other places, and kind of being able to support them. Even it's, it's just, you know, sometimes I set up a table and there'll be three three people, but I really enjoyed it. Like, you know, oh. This is your scene, these 10 people. But yeah. And I
0: mean, they'll probably make you a bad, a bad spaghetti or something. Yeah, and, you know. and
3: it was
1: just... I loved it. Um, and then... It was actually on an Avail tour. And Avail was heading up to Canada. I couldn't go up to Canada. So... I had my van. It was me and Christine. And then she bought her Pitbull Tonka. And Avail was going to go up to playing Canada on the east side. Christine said, oh, I'll go up. I said, oh, I'll take Tonka back to New York because Tonka couldn't go across the border. I'll take he didn't ton- have a
0: passport? Yeah,
1: he didn't have a passport. Poor guy. <laughs>
0: I'll
1: go back to New York City. We, we've been on the road a while. Um, I said, I'll go back to New York City to my place, and then I'll meet you in a few days when you come back down. So I went back and hadn't been back at the house for a while, so there was a lot to do. Phone rings and the casualties were about to go out on a tour. The person that was going to do their t-shirts fell through. At the time I had a printing press. They wanted to come over and print t-shirts. I'm like, oh man, I'm only in town for a couple of nights. I really just want some space and Mm -hmm. phone keeps ringing. Please, please let us come over. In the end I'm like, all right. So Jake comes over. This woman, his girlfriend at the time, comes over with him. Tonka's in the house. Tonka, uh, we toured the whole country. He had been around mm-hmm. people every night, young kids, riding him like he, uh, a horse and stuff. I'm outside doing some garbage. All of a sudden, Jake comes out with this woman in his arms. she has got a hand over her face. I'm like, blood. I'm like, what the fuck happened? Tonka bitten off her nose. Jesus Christ, well, well, why did that happen? Why did the dog do that?
0: Well, from- And who was this woman? Was she someone from the with them or from the neighborhood? She,
1: or she from, she's kind of a follower of theirs. Um, she was in some bands later. Uh, can't remember the name of the bands. So she had a big triple Mohican.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And from what we, from what I can gather um, from it went. It went into like legal oh, really? stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, well, from, from whatever you can say. But what? What is so it?
1: Basically, Tonka started kind of whining, and she she assumed he wanted attention. Mm. So she done the classic human thing. She she put her face uh, uh-huh. towards his. Yeah, yeah. And we think he was probably scared because of the Mohican, and whatever, yeah. and bit right and got her nose it wasn't completely off it was hanging it got it got reattached etc totally freaked to freak me out police came because the ambulance had been called police came they they then wanted to shoot Tonka and I said, "You're not going to do that." I started Like police are there. I'm trying to call up. I think his name was Dave Stein. He was running a label. I don't remember. Anyway, he was an animal rights, or he was an attorney, Mm -hmm. worked with animal rights issues. Um, Finally, the cops agreed. They would. They wanted to tranquilize Tonka, taking him into animal control. It was at a bad time when I think that two that week, a little baby had been attacked by a pit bull. Mm-hmm. It was all over the front page of the local newspapers. Pit bulls were getting yeah, they get their reputation. They get their yeah. reputation. Plenty of I I understand. Plenty of drug dealers have pit bulls. Yeah, a lot of people fight them and yeah, make them yeah. into
0: the the creatures that they
1: um, become. So <laughs> I'm like telling the cops, "Give me the tranquilizer. I'll go and." Cause they're like, they're, they're at a doorway. I had tied Tonka up to a post, and they're pointing a gun at him, and he's barking and showing his teeth. And they're like, See, it's aggressive. I'm like,
2: yeah, a gun If boy, I show <laughs>
1: if I point a gun at you, you probably argue yeah. So I said, Give me the trunk, I'll go. On. No, they wouldn't let me. In the end, they got him after a bunch of shots.
0: Got him, but they well, they tranquilized the tra- him okay, tranquilized. Yeah,
1: yeah. take him in the city. I find out the next morning they're gonna animal control is going to put him down so i get in touch with my friend who then starts whatever process legal mm-hmm. manages to get the stay of execution um then should i go into this or should i just move on no to no, no no no, of,
3: oh, okay.
0: i'm curious to hear the rest <laughs> of the story yeah for
1: sure so a bunch of shit came out later so and this I, we found it out by watching a video and we never we never it was about animal cruelty, so They put Tonker into the back of this police cruiser took him to animal control When they got to animal control It just turned out that this animal rights group was trying to do some undercover work around at the time pit bulls were being sold out of the back door of Animal control, ASPCA, uh, ASPCA, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To to whom? To drug drug dealers? To drug dealers and to fighters. Wow. So the cops pull up. So they're filming. The cops pull up. One cop grabs Tonka by his back legs, pulls him out of the trunk of the car, boom, head smacks on the ground, throw him onto the sidewalk and leave him there
0: the fuck. <laughs> and this is all being filmed.
1: This is being filmed. They didn't know it. It turned out, and we didn't know until we were watching a documentary. of uh, "Oh my God, this is this is Tonka."
0: Um, so I. Get a, Tonga was alive.
1: Tonka was alive. Right. And then what was alive.
0: the, the dog? Where was it supposed to go when he threw it on the ground like that? I mean, was <laughs> they just, just
1: assumed the per, uh, the night crew would come out and take him inside, or I don't know what sort of process yeah. he goes through. So I get a call from a judge the next day that. Tonka's gonna have to go through a test. So now I'm on the phone to Christine in Canada.
0: Is she losing her mind? She's losing her, her mind,
1: yeah. you know. We're trying to deal with keeping this out of the courts, you know, oh this is a community issue. What can we do? You know, mm-hmm. we started trying to talk with the person.
0: Um, yeah, how was Nose listen this whole thing? I mean, how did she react to this?
1: Well, she went into hospital, and it was a long. They reattached the nose. It was a l- long process, and um, I don't really. I think it was her parents. Right. Her parents, at some point, find found out I I had a record company,
2: mm-hmm. and in nah. there, in their, oh, in
1: their world, yeah. a record company. Oh, he's probably got Hollywood.
2: Oh yeah,
0: of course. Travel money, of course. Yeah.
1: So they passed in, I find it was a couple of weeks later, I get a a letter in, is that a deer coming through oh no. I get a letter come through the mail. (laughs) I open it, it's from her lawyer's farm. And there's a figure on there with so many zeros. I had to call up a friend to ask how much it was. Five million (laughs) dollars. Uh, I mean, I just cracked. You did sell a lot of Japanese hardcore records, there,
3: surely. <laughs> Five
1: million dollars.
0: And you—you you were responsible. It wasn't your dog, but there was, was there some feeling that there was a culpability on your part because?
1: Well, I find out later they—they they go after anyone they can. Okay. So they went after my landlord, who owned the building. Clearly, that person's fault. They went after me. They went after Christine. Anyone they could get money from, especially because lawyers get paid from commission on everything they get right so the more people they can try and get (laughs) and you know go after my landlord oh they can maybe get the building then
0: and i imagine this is a whale of a tale but uh, what happened in the end what what who gets what
1: so in the end um i got a i got a really good attorney who was a someone i'd known from the past and gave me a good deal, <laughs> although I think it was $300 an hour, which was half the price of what he charges. Yeah. Um, and from the day one, I had said to her, let's not go with a lawyer because if we have to get a lawyer, it will take anything we could give you to pay the lawyer. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand, I don't think they really understood how little we had.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So they kept going with it, and in the end, we settled out of court. She gave a terrible testimony, deposition, um, and that was kind of the end of any case. We settled out of court, and I think each of us paid her 5,000.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but it really it got to me it's the first time I've been through a legal thing in this country, even though it was going on everywhere, and it seems like the American yeah. thing.
2: Yeah,
0: litigious, <laughs> USA.
1: <laughs> it took a lot of energy out of me. I'm suing you after this interview, <laughs> by the way. I don't <laughs> want
0: to warn you in advance.
1: Um, every the money I had, which wasn't a lot, had gone into that, paying this lawyer and 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 then at the same time i had also got i was starting to hear about an organization that started out here called deliberation collective and i really liked the fact that their motto was linking social justice movements to end all oppression because mm-hmm. um, even even in all this <laughs> everything that's going on i was starting a be discouraged by, oh well these people are fighting this, the vegans are on this, mm-hmm. Th- these people are on this. They're
0: all factionalized concerns. Yeah, yeah, it
1: seemed like, well we all have something in common and each issue is, mm-hmm.
0: interconnected. there
1: yeah. wasn't anyone, so there was some, I was starting to correspond with this organization, um, I was getting frustrated with New York City I'd come out here a few years before and I drove down the coast and I was also starting to have these wants to go back to Europe. I was missing my cultural roots. I was missing being around people from a class that I I felt closer to, but I didn't feel like I wanted to go back to England. Mm -hmm. So I'd driven out here a few years ago, a few years before and driven down from Canada, down to Tijuana. And when I was driving along the Oregon coast, it reminded me of my favorite parts of England, which is the West Country, Cornwall, Devon, really rocky, ruggy, stormy mm-hmm. coast. And I knew someone out here. <coughs> I was like, oh, why don't I try Portland? Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's plenty of bands going on here. And it's a small, I, Originally I was going to do Seattle, I went to Seattle, but then I was like, you know, same shit's going on here, the, the punks are living in poor, mainly African-American communities, ra- ravaged by fucking drugs, and I'm just going to get sucked into mm-hmm.
2: similar yeah, stuff. Yeah.
1: And then I came here, I was like, wow, this is, it's a small, small town. I was starting to feel like I, I, I didn't need the stimulation of such a big city anymore. And then just seeing the greenery, Mm -hmm. I was just like, wow, I'm gonna try it. And came here, got involved with the Liberation Collective. um, Started getting involved in a lot of the environmental stuff that was going on, forest actions, a lot of deep animal rights stuff. um, And then kind of the whole WTO happened. Mm-hmm. And kind of the the whole west northwest just blew up with green anarchism and and just a lot of deep green resistance was going on and mm-hmm. um, so that that got my interest for a while. Um, then kind of things came to a head where after the veil. Uh, the veil arson attack when the ski mm, do you remember? You should
0: probably uh, I don't I have maybe okay. vague recollection or maybe I not so you should it. probably explain this So d- me, the, the WTO
1: had happened and some me- some media had kind of linked to a lot of this. the actions that were going on with anarchists from Eugene mm-hmm. um, at the time the Northwest a kind of radical environmental animal community was was doing a lot um, around that time there was a new ski development happening in Vale um, which was mo- it was going to be built in some lynx habitat and people had gone through the process of town meetings and trying to Blocked this, it went ahead. Um, One night the new structure that was being built burnt to the ground and overnight the Liberation Collective put out a press release Mm -hmm. for the action. Uh, We had done some stuff with ALF, we had put out press releases for the ALF in the past, but this was the first action under this new uh, ELF Environmental liberation from, and, woof! Their the heat came down heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, the main spokesperson. I might have to go and move my. Nope, I'm alright. The main farmer. Oh no, it's not. I got to go and move my car. Okay, all
2: right. I'll, <laughs> I'll pause that. Sorry about that.
1: So yeah, uh, at the time, Craig Roseborough was kind of a spokesperson and immediately um, he got subpoenaed to a grand jury in DC and to go before a grand jury here and then he got subpoenaed to go before a Senate hearing committee.
0: Now Liberation and ELF were not the same organization?
1: No, Liberation Collective just for whatever reason, activists felt that um, communiques going out from this organization mm-hmm. would be a good way. And the Liberation Collective was sympathetic
2: mm-hmm.
1: to the way actions were done and why they were done. Right. So Craig, Craig was a really good speaker,
3: mm-hmm.
1: so he wanted to Present to people this action has happened, this is why, and uh, it's not just about the human you know, there's an animal piece, there's an environmental piece. Right. Um, and as things heated up, our cars were being we found equipment on our cars, wow. um, and then I got a visit from the FBI. And they were basically going around. So some other stuff, uh, a, some cars in Eugene have been firebombed. Um, there was a lot of
0: car. Were these targeted cars? Yeah, they were target.
1: Uh, it was a, um, an SUV lot mm-hmm. that had been targeted. Um, there have been a number of ALF actions over the years that had happened in Oregon. There were fur farms. There were horse farms. A lot of stuff had been happening, and all of a sudden they and I'd kind of been through this in New York City where when they when they when the powers that be can't necessarily use legal means mm-hmm. to get you and I think a lot of us that have studied the sixties and especially the black liberation movement
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. know about Cointel Pro and yeah, yeah, you know yeah. And I'd seen this a little in New York City where I'd been part of a, a nightclub that when, when they couldn't use legal means to shut it down, the boss got a phone call mm-hmm. and basically threatened. Yeah. So they started, they, they came to talk to me. They started showing up at people's jobs where they had no right to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But they knew that if, oh, if, a, if some business owner hears that, oh, the FBI's here to talk yeah, to yeah. so-and-so, yeah, they're probably yeah. gonna lose their job or... Right,
0: right. How did you feel that you were treated when you had your direct, when they were directly
1: talking to you? I actually didn't talk to them. Hmm. I decided I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. So someone else told them I wasn't there. They knew I was there. Yeah. Um, but they, I think all they wanted to do was to let me know
2: yeah.
1: we're keeping they up. had been watching yeah. us. Yeah. But now they were doing, going to that next step of, we're openly going to watch you mm-hmm. and yeah, harass you. At the same time, they started going after, at the time, we had a non-profit status. And that was an eye-opener we got in the mail. We got like this, this letter from the IRS saying they were revoking our non-profit status. Not only that, there was a file I'd love to, I, the other week I, I was thinking i 'd love to get all the file. There was this file with it with recorded conversations, with pictures, and I 'm like, "Hold on, the IRS doesn't do stuff like this. <laughs> right, yeah so yeah, there were pictures of us, me and Craig at events, uh, you know talking engagements, etc they 've been f- tracking us for years. there were conversations that we had had on the street because we knew the place we were working was bugged so if, yeah. if we were going to have conversations we would go out but they were actually recording those conversations so they revoked our non-profit status it created people were feel intense I in the, in so the group yeah. and it basically the the intensity of it dissolved pretty much kind of ripped ripped relationships apart that classic of Oh, they're an informer. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The purchase.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Which I guess
0: is a really effective tool of, uh, of a co- tool. yeah, yeah. It's just plant the seeds yeah of like some, some. We're hearing it from somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. which one of them? Yeah.
1: And then, yeah, so and then thing. Yeah, I think they. Uh, they got. They went after a weak link down in Eugene. Jake Ferguson and then he basically was the catalyst just kind of almost like they do with the Mafia Mm -hmm. where they I I had that image of the pictures up on the the board yeah, and they they start linking them and and one by one the whole green scare happened and tons of activists some still in jail some have moved on.
0: that that seemed to be uh, correct me if i'm wrong the the last m- major activities of green animal liberation domestic terrorism uh um, or i mean some people maybe would want to use a different term for that, but like I don't really hear much of that sort of Things being no. burned down in the name of, you know, environmentalism or uh, animal activism. I think days. that, especially, I'm sure after nine, nine eleven, that the apparatus for shutting these things down mm-hmm. became much bigger mm-hmm. and you know, more active.
1: Yeah, I think that was when they started passing laws like the domestic terrorism and animal terrorism, and those had an effect.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, yeah.
1: now and again, you'll hear about. Some person went to a building site and burnt a couple of houses down and spray painted elf but you know some of the all of a sudden yeah some of the the jail time was
0: the yeah, astronomical crazy yeah, i mean
1: yeah. you know free free down what 10 years for the burning of the suvs uh, and 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 i think as people started seeing this as the same happened with like um Weather Underground, you know, where the majority have kind of come out of jail and said, ah, it wasn't the most effective means. There's a few people still in jail that have, have stood up. But
0: no, I'm often, Weather Underground was blowing up a toilet in a, in a courthouse yeah. or something. I mean, it really wasn't the most effective, <laughs> yeah. actually, because it's yeah. a toilet in a yeah. courthouse they blow yeah. up.
1: And blowing up, yeah. You shoot someone, the idea continues.
0: Yeah, and you don't tend to make very many allies yeah. with exploding things, especially yeah. when you know shrapnel is involved and, and innocent people wind up getting killed in the or For people, in the process.
1: You know, and and back then I saw, you know, WTO was, it, it was incredible. Mm-hmm. The solidarity was amazing. I think, gender stuff was, gender issues were happening within the environmental movement. An animal movement out here around a lot of uh, masculine, you know. I had seen it in the straight edge movement when, you know, we'd run into like a, what was that? There was a stupid gang that started out a straight edge. The Courage Crew. Courage Crew, oh, yeah, I don't know. There think was this girl, you can look them up, there was this. <laughs> a gang called The Courage Crew that basically would, if, if someone was smoking at a show, boom, they'd go right, and beat yeah. down if they were drinking, etc. Like, And Taking just that an aspirin, whole just, macho, yeah. and it, we were starting to see it here, like people loose-lipped talking about wanting to bomb this, wanting to bomb that. I, yeah. no, I, I didn't identify with that um, I uh, I understood the passion but f- very few of these people had any real understanding of the, the suffering of animals or understanding of the environmental costs of cutting down whole forests etc um, so I kind of started after liberation collective went down i i had already started hanging out of peoples i was doing food not bombs i got involved in food not bombs i've been the minute i got out here i started doing a chapter of food not bombs and i really enjoyed food not bombs i enjoyed that i could use my cooking skills to turn waste into great food and I always say the best restaurant I've ever worked at is Food Not Bombs because the, the level of, um, I never got financial reimbursement, but just the love
2: mm-hmm.
1: of enjoying a meal and, and having prisoners, and this always cracks people up, having prisoners, people that have grown up on three meat meals a day, come to Food Not Bombs, eat a meal and say, it's so nice to eat a meal with no meat. <laughs> <You guys. laughs> Um, so someone at Food Not Bombs knew some stuff I was going through, was a little concerned about where it might go and, and suggested I apply. There was a job to come up at People's Food Corp in produce department um, and they suggested I apply for it. Prior to that I was still living on pretty much the music the best I could. And I've always lived pretty minimally. Mm-hmm. Um, I have very little, I didn't breed, so I don't have re- financial responsibilities there. I never Did you won't. have a vasectomy? No, I okay. just said I would never breed. Right. A, however that works out. <laughs> um, no college responsibility, financial responsibilities, so I can live pretty minimally. Um, so yeah, I applied for the job at Peoples, got that job at Peoples, and that then introduced me to a farmer this was like 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Right? That introduced me to a local farmer. I started going out and volunteering with them, which then introduced me to an Irish woman, Paula, who was farming this piece of land at Farmageddon. Um, was it called Farm? This- no, okay, it was so called no- Sonos Organic back then. Okay, yeah. And I was buying produce from her, her people's as well as doing a farmer's market where we shared a booth. And 10 years ago, she came to me and said she had inherited some land back in Ireland and was interested in going back and trying to make a go of it, but she was nervous it might not work out. So she wanted to see if I would caretake the land. At the time I was living in a collective house in North, portland called the mississippi house um and had a house meeting said do you want to you know we talk a lot about food issues labor issues farm issues how about we grow our own food there was interest so we started i think there was about there was a lot of us like 12 of us the first season by the end of the season i think there were two of us like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um but I, I got really into it and I kept on working at Peoples and then farming and we started the first the first season, the first season we just grew for ourselves, the second season we, we got a little more confident and a little more skilled and we again had planned to grow for ourselves but we, we grew so much more food than we could use. Um, At the time i had started a little info shop next to our house called the Black Rose. We started kind of giving food away there to needy in the community. But at the same time, I went to one of the vendors at the People's Farmers Market, which is every Wednesday. And I asked, would they mind selling some of our extra produce? Mm -hmm. So that summer I would drop produce to them and they sell it. Then the next year came and we, I said, oh, we'll do the same thing. It worked out good. And then I went to them. I said, oh, do you mind? This was uh, Mac, uh, Libby and Max from Wild Things. I went to them and I asked, oh, would you be willing to sell some of our produce again? And Libby's like, no, you're going to sell it yourself. <laughs> so that, that summer, I started going to the farmer's market. And, and then a few of the other collective people would come and we'd grow. Yeah, it looks like a chanterelle over there. <laughs> um, we started selling produce, and then we done that. We shared a booth with Max and Libby for a number of years.
0: Were you Farmageddon at that point yet, or yeah, is this still? Okay, yeah, we're, yeah. We're, Did we're, you did you come up with that name? This, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, <laughs> I have to say.
1: Yeah, people thought it was, most of the collective thought it was a little too Armageddon farm, but people no, have, people have liked it. Um, we'd done that for a number of years and then Max and Libby decided to retire so we went off, we got our own booth and at the same time I started having a working relationship with this, this farmer in Washington, Richard Washington, Greg from Northwest Organics. I really liked what his farm was about, he's a Mexican farmer and uh, asked if he would like us, if we could sell some of his produce that we don't grow. And we started working with him selling at market and we kind of represent him. And that's how I got to know Greg and then just this year, Greg turned around and offered us an acre and a half of land with a house up in Redfield, Washington so i've moved up there i was living at an eco village in southeast called kailash eco village i moved out of there i've moved up to the farm up there and hopefully by next year i'm starting to plant but on greg's piece of land not our land yet next year we should have access to water and we'll start growing on that so i've been growing growing food for now about about thirteen years. That's
3: great.
0: Could you have ever imagined being back, you know, in squats in New York City that, that you would be living, you know, here in this? I mean, the listener can't see this, but it's beautiful, you know, and, and very, very far removed from that world. Yeah. People, some people say uh, all punks eventually become hippies. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's funny because just last week, some some regulars at the market, <laughs> she she accidentally let out that she calls us the hippie farm. <laughs> we were cracking up about it it's like man if you knew my past <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: what happened uh, to your record collection
1: i sold it um this local record store mississippi records mm-hmm. they bought it a friend of mine that had lived at the house he had started working for mississippi records and i didn't i didn't want the stuff to end up on ebay for ridiculous amounts and I wanted people to have access to some of that stuff that yeah. wasn't available. Uh,
0: the person who the first person who buys it though at a reasonable price is going to be putting on. Yeah,
1: though, right? uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> it was a good idea though. Yeah,
1: yeah. But yeah, that's what happened to it. Oh, he came over and
0: I didn't even price it.
1: Uh, what, yeah. do
0: you miss? The
1: No, I don't have attachment to material. Things. Do you
0: have access to music and do this is it still an, an interest of yours? In,
1: in yeah, your I mean life? online. Yeah, you know, I'll check out videos on YouTube, and it seems like everything is downloadable somewhere online. Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, at home, I just have a radio, so I just listen to. It's interesting. I listen to the stuff. It's kind of goes back to that thing of growing up at a time hating all the stuff my parents listened to mm-hmm. but now like that's mm-hmm. the stuff i'm listening to so elton john is <laughs> <the> soothing into
0: <laughs> the good night
1: uh, and then you know i'm actually like listening to some of the lyrics in those songs and being like "Well, like i was just the other night i was listening to billy joel i can't remember what song it is but he's talking about the rich person living in long island uh-huh. i'm like damn that's a good song i just <laughs> <have the> lyrics <laughs> But, yeah, now I'm farming, and who knows where it will take me next. I have an interest to go to South America or Mexico. Um, I would like to be a little more... I, I would like to try the subsistence, um, which is it's so hard in the U.S.
0: Where well, You say the subsistence, what, what do you mean? Oh, sorry, uh, subsistence
1: living, so at a community where we grow the food with every you you put maybe off the grid or Mm -hmm. you're accessing fuel just from the community but mainly growing our own food Um,
0: so you don't think that that here in portland now is where you will be until the end of your life like you think that there may be other movements or changes going forward at some point
1: yeah yeah um, unless there's a complete resource capitalist collapse mm-hmm. and then maybe I'll have an interest <laughs> in staying. But the whole t- I think the whole time of... I don't want to be financially forced mm-hmm. to do things, um, to live, to have access to the land because I can afford. Man. To have access to mm-hmm. land, and just being around, I still, its its still, it's still a struggle. Being around in t- a, a country where there's so much entitlement mm-hmm. and communities where there's so much entitlement slash privilege.
0: Yeah, I mean, as we talked about before, the, this is the greater society is looming in on this this current yeah. farming space. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a housing development. I mean. I don't know how, if the mic is picking it up, but I can, you know, we can hear the sound of houses, mm. shitty McMansions being built, right the fuck on the other side of your your, your little cabin here, which is
1: disheartening. And, and farmers I've farmers I've met around the country that have had development butt up against their farms and possibly had the romantic image that oh well, we'll get a relationship with those people those people will be buying produce from them the rea- reality is often being those people don't want to hear your tractor at five o'clock in the morning right. they don't want to smell when you're spreading manure or your, your lime in your fields and the lime dust yeah. is blowing over their home even though a lot of times they're like the bias have that romantic image of we're going to be right next to the farm uh, yeah farm, and see the fresh, animal yeah, yeah, you know and yeah. and
0: they probably yeah. really just want to go to whole foods this reflects how <laughs> yeah. fucking beautiful they are yeah. too yeah.
2: uh
0: all right we need to, to wrap it up but right, one, awesome. one last question um do you feel that where you are now is a natural progression of all of the ideas that you propagated over the years the lyrics that you put out the projects that you were involved with do you think that this is a natural progression of seeing those ideas in effect
1: definitely I mean this to me is just another DIY do it yourself project Um, and wanting to try to you know with music I didn't want to deal with their music system Mm -hmm. I don't want to deal with the food system so to me the natural thing is to walk if I don't want to deal with food being trucked around the world I should be growing my food so it seems like a natural the natural progression Um, and that being outside it's incredible. Even though on a on a, you know a hot day like this, I, I I tell people like you know all these green green people that go to their green businesses and plug in their green computers and I use no electricity out here. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> like, not that everyone can be out here, but yeah. I don't know. and it's it's just another planting a seed experimenting with an idea, seeing other people have done it, Um, I'm very interested in, you know, urban agriculture, bringing food to food deserts, um, growing in urban settings, maybe I'll go back to the urban setting, who knows, Hmm. you know.
0: I think it's great that because of the bands that you were in, that people will pay attention to you, maybe more so than than some other people, so that when you're putting these ideas out into the world, when you're talking about this farming and these alternatives, that people will actually pay attention to what you're saying and is planting a different seed Mm. inside of their head. Uh, And that, I think, is really great. You know, you're not just doing it in anonymity, Mm. but you're doing it in some people will pay attention because hey that was the guy that sang for this band or he did this distro or you know this this other stuff.
1: And just quickly you know like I said earlier which I didn't put on I didn't talk about on here another reason I was interested in growing my own food was because I I started n- learning about all the animal inputs and I wanted to try and grow food without all the animal inputs and, mm-hmm. and grow veganic vegan food. So That was another piece
0: of it. Super. Well, thank you very much for uh, talking to me. It was was really a great pleasure for me.
1: Thank you.